This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Today's reading comes from James. It's James 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. CRC. I am Pastor John, and it is an honor to serve this church uh, with you. Uh, Would you join me in prayer before we dive into this great book? Father, we love you. Thank you so much for the Word of God. Father, may you challenge us this morning. May you equip us. May you ready our hearts to receive from your Word. May the edification of your people be present here today. May we posture ourselves in such a way to hear from you. Humble our hearts, God. Let us hear this word from James in James 2. It's a challenging word. It's a difficult word. But Father, let us rightfully discern it. We love you so much. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your people. We pray for those who are worshiping all over Coopersville right now and carrying the name of Jesus. We pray that you would bless their gatherings as well. 
We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Again, I'm Pastor John. We've been working our way through the book of James over the last several weeks. And just to give you a bit of a, I know some of you are planners, just to give you a bit of an idea of what it's going to look like this month, we will continue to work our way through James and we will finish James in the month of November. Um, And then in December, we're going to start an Advent series that I'm really excited about. I was actually sending text messages last night to our worship leaders and, and people just like, hey, I got some ideas for Advent. Here they are. So there are great plans in place. The specific passage we are looking at today in James is one of the most debated, I would argue, while the other faith, faith without works or deeds, lacks assurance, the assurance of eternal life. In the text that our sister and elder Rachel just read, James is certainly not arguing that works must be added to faith in order to be considered genuine. If that was the case, much of what I have preached and those of us who have preached up here over the last three plus years, that that would be a major problem with where we stand as believers in Christ. Matter of fact, those who have preached in this pulpit over the last 165 years of history, that that would be a big, a big, big, big problem. If It was assumed that you had to add works to your faith in order to be justified. I want us to just be very clear opening up this morning. We are not teaching a works-based salvation and neither is James in this text this morning. The idea that he is bringing is this. Genuine faith, in short, will inevitably be marked by works. Genuine faith will inevitably be marked by works. Now let me define faith and let me define works. Faith is obedience and trust in God. Faith trusts and obeys God. Works is a life of loving God and loving others. Okay, so with those working definitions of those terms within the statement, genuine faith, one that trusts and obeys God, will inevitably be marked by works. That is a life of loving God and loving others. Again, do not forget, anytime we're going through a book of the Bible, do not forget the context of what we just preached and learned last week and in the previous weeks. What was Jesus, or James rather, teaching In James chapter 2, early on, the royal law. What is the royal law? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And specifically, he was pointing on the second half of that, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so here, James is in continuation with what he has been teaching earlier in the chapter. We're going to look at a couple points from James in his heart here in chapter two. The first point is simply faith without works is useless. Faith without works is useless. The youth have a, uh, they have a term for that, Um, useless. It's, It's called cap. You ever heard a kid say cap? Man, mom, that's cap. Grandma, that's cap. 
That basically means that's false, that's not true, or you're full of it, that that's, that's cap, okay? Now, it'll hit harder in the second service. Note the example that James uses, okay? He, he uses the example of a person who is a believer in Christ who does not have clothes or daily food, and another person who has means, who is a believer in Christ as well, within the same household of faith, they simply give some religious jargon to the person who was lacking clothes and food and then just go about their business. That is the example that James uses. Now, you must understand in terms of the context of these verses, this is not just a person who is not dressing stylishly. Okay, this is not a person who, who is rocking, you know, Walmart brand clothes or anything like that. No, this is a person who is completely and utterly destitute. They lack clothes. And this is not a person who just doesn't shop at Costco or Publix, but they shop at Aldi. No, no, no. This person is, personally, I shop at both um, Costco and Aldi. I think there's great deals to be had in both. But this is a person rather who is utterly and completely destitute of food. And James here is calling out the foolishness of such a person, a believer who has the means to give, to simply give some religious jargon and not provide the need. See, that type of faith is useless. I mean, just imagine that in today's context. You see someone and they are struggling, they are barely surviving, and you look at them and you say, hey brother, good to see you. You know, you should have a good meal later on today and put on a pair of pants. God bless you, man. And then you just walk away without providing the means for them to receive what they need. It's foolishness, James would say, and so would his elder brother, Jesus Christ. What good is such faith? This illustration, I think, cuts two ways and really specifically to two groups of people who are meant to be exponentially blessed through such a story. First, the destitute person is meant to be blessed by the hand of God through the body of Christ. Okay, they stand to be blessed, being a part of the household of faith when a need that they have is met, it is from the hand of God through the body of Christ. But secondly, the person who is wealthier, the person who has means is also set to be blessed because you are and I am blessed to be a blessing. And so we too are set to be blessed. And what God does when we live open-handed lives, what God does when we live selflessly and not selfishly, he causes us to not be enslaved to our pocketbooks. And in turn, he blesses us when we are not a slave to our wealth, but we rather live open-handedly giving out our wealth so that others too can be blessed and that needs can be met. The reality is when our faith is not operating in this way, church, we have a tendency spiritually and physically to just become consumeristic. To, to just assume that this is all about us. Give me the Bible study I want. 
Give me the style and type of service I want. Give me my way for this decision in the church. Give me that new thing. Give me bigger and better stuff. And we, come, we become, when we are not living open-handed lives, we become easily, too easily, consumeristic. But the type of faith that James is contending for here displays a person who has been blessed by God and now they are to be conduits of that blessing that God has given them as they freely give to others. And as the people of God, again, we need to be reminded that we are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. In fact, James indicates that the type of lip service that is given here is completely and utterly useless. That type of religious jargon that just talks it but doesn't walk it is a stench to the heavens. Again, if you've been with us through this series, the author of the book of James is James, most likely, and most historians believe, uh, Jesus' elder brother, or rather, younger brother. And James is literally taking out teachings from Jesus and extracting them into the context of the Jerusalem church of his day in which he is leading. And many believe, and I tend to be one of them, that this particular teaching that James is pulling from Jesus in the Gospels is found in Matthew 25, verses 40 and 43, specifically we'll look at, but the context there is Jesus is literally meeting with the nations in judgment, and he is separating the goats from the sheep. And so the goats are on his left, the sheep are on his right, and he says these words in verses 40 through 43, and they should be poignant to our very souls. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. So James, in relation to his older brother's teachings in this parable, is claiming that as we rest in the grace of God, and as he begins to mess us up in the most beautiful way possible, then our love for God will ultimately overflow into a love for others. Again, is it, is it imperfect? Absolutely. I mean, how many of us here today, just in the last seven days, can say, I have loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength 24 hours of every day? None of us, okay? I should be the only weirdo holding my hand up right now, right? None of us can say that. How many of us can honestly say, last 24 hours, seven days a week, that I have loved my neighbor perfectly as myself? None of us. 
But the idea in the heart of James's teaching, the idea in the heart of Jesus's teachings all throughout the gospel, the idea of the heart of the first century church throughout Acts, it is not about perfection, but more about progress. It is not about perfection, but more about progress. That God is indeed working and moving and his spirit is alive and active in his church, in his people, and they are going forth and going out to live what he has called them to live on mission for him. This is the heart of the text that we are reading and studying today. So essentially, James's argument is you can't be a Christian and not live it out at all. Second point coming from James 17, or James 2, 17 through 25, um, is this, and we're gonna read that again together. So you can either direct your eyes to the screen, or if you wanna open up your Bibles, that would be awesome as well. Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Okay, just brief pause there. James is now interjecting an antagonist into the argument. Okay, so if James was passive aggressive, this could literally be a person who may be in the church in Jerusalem. Like, you know, you, you know like, I don't want to say a name of someone in here, so I'm, I'm struggling to find a name, but uh, Bob. There's probably a Bob in here. That was a dumb name. But, you know, like Bob in the church, right? Sorry, Bob, if you're here. But, you know, like Bob, you know, someone might say, you have faith and I have deeds. You have faith and I have work. And so James now is inserting this antagonist into his argument to drive home a point. And he says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds or by my works. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You foolish person, do not. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab. And I love that James brings Rahab into this, like and literally pairs her with the patriarch of our faith. Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Faith without works cannot save. And I know what you're thinking with a statement like this. Whoa, right? And if your mind is thinking theologically, you're thinking maybe antagonistically as well. You're thinking, what about the, what about the thief on the cross, right? What about that person that I know on their deathbed claimed Jesus, confessed their sins, repented unto salvation, and died but had no opportunity for works? That's the exception, and that is also, I would say this, if they had another day, if they had another week, if they had another year, 
that faith that was genuine in them would have certainly produced works if the opportunity arose. Again, the antagonist in this argument is seeking to make a point that faith and works are two different things and they are somehow disconnected. You have works, James, congratulations. I just have faith that the Lord will save. And James, in the middle of verse 18, basically says, show me your faith then. Here's a, probably an illustration that I've heard several times. You see this stool um, here on, on stage I can tell you that I trust this stool and I can even have an intellectual debate regarding this stool slash chair. It's, it's a very interesting one because it has the backing of a chair, yet it is the height of a tall man's chair, but it is the size of a stool. And I can tell you all day that I trust this stool. It's a good stool. I mean, its legs are made of steel. I can tell you the brand of it. I can tell you perhaps when it was made. But if you asked me to sit in it, and I said, ah, mm -mm. I'm good. Let's just talk about it. I've had stool hurt in my day. I've had a lot of problems with stools of such. I don't think I can do that. But we can talk more about it. I can study it can intellectually show you that I have put in the time, effort, and work. James is contending again. He says, look, look, you can tell me all about the intellectual pursuit of your faith, but I will show you my faith by showing you what I do and showing you that I truly trust the stool by resting on the stool. See, this is a, a major distinction. And, and let me just be real, especially in the Michigan Bible Belt that we live in. Like, John, know this, I'm telling y'all, I come from 40 minutes south of Chicago. This, it, to me, this is, this is the Bible Belt. I don't know if it's been officially claimed that, but at least in the Midwest, this is it. We are living in it. So many of you have testimony that is beautiful. You've grown up in this church. You've been baptized on this stage. You know the scriptures. But the question has to be, has it all just been an intellectual pursuit? Have you just learned the language? Have you learned the jargon? But you have not truly trusted in Christ. You have not truly sat on the stool. That is what we have to wrestle with as the people of God, especially in a gospel-rich community. James's point seems clear. Faith alone saves you. But genuine faith is never alone. Faith alone indeed does save you. Faith alone, Christ alone saves you, yes. But genuine faith is never alone. And he gives us two powerful examples, one that you would probably and I would probably expect and the other that we maybe wouldn't respect or expect rather. And some of us wouldn't respect, unfortunately. The first one is Abraham. He had many sons. 
and many sons had Father Abraham. No one was going to finish that. Okay, Abraham revealed, if first service won't, I know second service won't. The first one is Father Abraham, right? Abraham revealed that he trusted God by sitting on the stool. Genesis 15 through 22, soak it up perhaps sometime this week. It wasn't always pretty, insert Hagar and Ishmael, but when push came to shove, when God called Abraham to sacrifice the promised son Isaac, he took the promise up on the hill and tied him to the altar with great trepidation, with great trust, and with great hope that God would provide. And he exhibited exhibited that genuine faith is never alone. And God then exhibited through Abraham's obedience that he alone is truly faithful. And then there's Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. No young girl dreams of being a prostitute. That only happens through great despair and great suffering and deplorable acts against you. And Rahab, who was a Canaanite woman, heard of the promised Messiah that was to come. Salvation was going to come through the Jews. And as Joshua sends out the spies, Rahab invites them in and hides them and calls their opponents to go a different way. And our sister Rahab is indeed just that. She is our older sister. She is a part of our family. And she is actually found in the lineage of Jesus, our Savior. She's actually found also in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith. And James uses her as an example, and I know for some of you, you are just like, Pastor John, will you just get to the point? Tell me what works I need to do to ensure that I am saved. And those of us who are thinking like that are missing it all. Rahab should show us clearly that it is not about a specific work or specific works, but it is all and the grace of God and the grace of God alone exhibited through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Think about it. First, we have a Jewish man. He's the ultimate Jew and a patriarch of our faith. And then we have a woman, a Canaanite and a prostitute. And James says that the one thing that unites them both is life-altering, life-transforming faith in the word of God. Here's the call of Jesus that John points to in John chapter 3, verse 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whether you're a patriarch or whether you're a prostitute, whether you are a billionaire or whether you are broke, Whether you are upper class, middle class, lower class, 
whether you are black, white, Hispanic, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever believes does not remain the same. Whoever believes in the Son does not remain the same, for God loves us too much to keep us where we're at. If the glorious gospel has saved you, then the glorious gospel will sanctify you, and the glorious gospel with the Holy Spirit indwelling within us will preserve us to the day of judgment. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? And do you see the evidence of such sanctification that is growing in godliness in your life, growing in your love for God and your love for others in your life? Do, do you see that? The thrust of the book of James is that God longs to invite you into all that there is to have in Christ. Every jot and tittle found in the word of God is not God's way of looking to steal from you. It's God's way of inviting you and I into the deepest, most fulfilling life imaginable. Have you experienced that, friends? Have you experienced that? I'll conclude on, on this story. My... My daughter, when she was two, about to be three, um, we found a Groupon, because we're cheap, uh, of a uh, two-night stay at Great Wolf Lodge, right? And so, two years old, man, at this time, I was then just a little over two years into a, a church restart plan. We were grinding, it felt like I was really wrestling with the work-life balance. And so, this was an opportunity to get away for a couple of nights and enjoy, enjoy my family and my daughter, just two years old, about to be three years old. Um, I was excited because they had these kitty, th these kitty slides that couldn't have been any, any longer than about four or five feet long. And so I remember we got there, we plugged her into one of those harness or floats or whatever, and we plugged her in, and I was just excited to get to the kitty slide with her because it's every dad's dream to have a kid going 12 miles an hour while you catch them before they hit the water. And so we got there, and I was just waiting, come on, baby, come on, Sienna. And she just stood up there crying and crying and crying. Nothing was going to get her down. And then we, I was like, okay, well, we'll just go to the pool, no slide, and I'll sit in the water, stand in the water, and just wait for her to jump in. And nothing was going to get my daughter to jump in fully. And I was like, oh, man, does she have a water phobia or what's up? And now let me fast forward to just this past April. It's April, and you know, here in Western Michigan, if you're not able to get out to a spring break or something, uh, you know, the, the nights are early, it gets dark early, it's, it's cold, it's dark. I think this past year especially, we barely had any sun. And so like it was April, and like there was hope, right? There, there was the hope of the sun, no pun intended. And I was just like, honey, do you want to go to Cedar Point? Like, 
There's roller coasters. It's the roller coaster capital of the nation. We'll talk mom into it. Don't worry about her. I got her. Do you want to go? And then we'll get to a place where there's a pool and have fun. And she started getting all giddy and all excited. She said, yes, dad. Yes. And all through us, we book a couple nights stay at Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio. And all throughout that time leading up, we're watching YouTube videos of Cedar Point roller coasters because she's now 40 nine inches tall with shoes on and a lot of these are 48 inch minimums and so I'm like we're getting you on one of these and she's like I just can't wait dad and now at six years old the first roller coaster we walk up to I will never forget I'm having second guesses for her <laughs> I'm like honey are you sure this is the first one I want to go on, Dad. We watched the video. We experienced it. Like, oh, we can do this. And she's hyping me up. And I'm like, okay. And my knees are knocking, just going up there with her. Not because I don't love roller coasters, but because I love my daughter so much. And so we get on, no joke. And the first thing is clink, 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 clink. I mean, it's like the first thing. And I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me. And she's just got this big smile on her face and we go down that first thing and for the whole ride she's buried in my armpit just crying <laughs> I say well we better go back to the kitty area of Cedar Point we go back there in just an hour and a half later she's like can we go on another big one <laughs> and so this time I'm like we're talking your mom and they're going on this one too. And so it's me in the back and it's Helen and Sienna on the corkscrew at Cedar Point. And it's, and again, it was much of the same, but then we go back to the hotel and this girl, she's diving in head first to the water. She's doing everything we taught her not to do when it comes to pool safety. You could not keep her or pull her out of the water. Here's my point. A simple intellectual pursuit of God is safe. It's comfortable. It's like you're know, watching the YouTube videos of our favorite preachers and just watching and not actually engaging with the text. Man, that's comfortable. That's easy. But actually going in and diving in and going on the roller coaster that is this life, again, a life of pursuing God, pursuing his word, understanding some of y'all have many decades in the faith and you're still reading some of the same passages you read 40, 50 years ago and you're still growing from them and you're still learning more. Have you just jumped in and jumped on the roller coaster, the corkscrew of this Christian life? Have you experienced such a life? You know, we do this thing at our home, which pie is this, in this one. And these are like, these are called table topics um, with little cards in them. And it's from um, Chick-fil-A. And the question that always seems to come up. We have two packs of these. We just do them usually at the table after a dinner. 
is where is the most exciting place you've ever gone? And every time I ask that question at our table or Helen asked that question at our table for Sienna, even though it was, came with the most trepidation and fear and crying and everything else, every time the answer is Cedar Point. Cedar Point, Dad, and can we go again next year? Can we go again next year? Can we like set that up now, Dad? I'm telling y'all, this life, this life of truly pursuing God, loving God, and living in the overflow of that love to others around us, this is the good life. This is the only life. This is the best life. And when you experience it, and when you get to live in it, I'm telling you, it's wild at first, and you might put your head in the armpit of our Father. But after a while, you start to, you start to get giddy about the opportunity to live in His will and to seek to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and continue to grow in that because it's a lifelong pursuit and to seek to continue to love others. Yes, even the difficult people, don't look at them if they're here. So what's the question we should be asking? And this is so simple. The question that I wanna challenge you with this morning, it's a two-part question. Do you truly love God? Not, not do you know about the love of God, but have you experienced the love of God? Are you living in the love of God? Again, not perfection, but progress. And if so, how is that love impacting the world around you? How is that love impacting the world around you? Because genuine faith assures that there's an abiding and growing love for God, not that you can't go through seasons of drought. Hear me out. You will go through seasons of drought. Okay? I'm not saying right now, if you're in a season of drought, this could be seriously convicting and somewhat concerning for you. But for a lot of you, it's just a season of drought. And we just need to get you back to the waterfall of his grace. And it is out of, though, that genuine faith and love for God that we seek to impact the world around us for Christ. And it is a delight and a thrill to live in it. Like our sister Rahab, that cost her something. That could have cost her everything. And the patriarch of our faith, Abraham, that could have cost him a lot. So if you're here today and you are aware that you have been on a mere intellectual pursuit and it has not broken through your heart and heart, God has not fulfilled what he has prophesied in Ezekiel to take your heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh. And you just know it. The Holy Spirit is pursuing you. He is wooing you. And you just sense that right now. Today's your day. It's the greatest day ever for you then. You don't need to be filled with 
such mourning that, oh no, I've wasted 40 years, 50 years, 60, 70 years. You need to be filled with joy that today salvation has come in Jesus Christ. And he is mine and I am his. And he has lovingly, patiently pursued me all of these years, even though I have just gone through motions. That's a beautiful God. That's an amazing God. That's a God who is long-suffering, who is not quick to anger, but is slow to anger and is abounding in steadfast joy. God's inviting you to confess and turn from your sin and enjoy the depths of the life in Christ that he purchased for you to possess and to enjoy. So I, I wanna invite our musicians up, um, Carol and Sandy, um, come on up. We're just gonna have a little bit I know we don't have time, I don't care. Um, we're, we're just gonna have a little bit of an extended time in prayer, just a, just a few minutes. Um, just wherever you're at, just seek to posture your heart. For you, maybe, maybe you're in a drought right now and you just, you just need to be placing yourself under the waterfall of his grace. Or, or maybe for you, you are on the high of your life and you just need to be reminded of these truths. Or perhaps for you, you find yourself lost and destitute and you need the mercy of Christ. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. A grace that not only pursues us, but a grace that lovingly exposes us in our wickedness, in our sin, for we are lawbreakers, all of us. But God, it is such a grace that doesn't keep us where we are at, but it is a grace that progresses us in faith in Christ. Father, may you pursue us in such a way. Father, we take a moment to repent from any sin that is just besetting right now and that we have been wrestling with and we have been hiding from you and we have been struggling with alone. We take this moment to repent. Father, if this has just been an intellectual pursuit for us and nothing more, we, we've studied the stool, we've looked at the stool, we've watched the stool for some time, but we have never rested on it. We have never truly trusted you and followed you and obeyed you as you call us to. We ask for salvation to be ours today. We repent from our sin, turn from our sins, we confess it to you, and we wanna trust in you and follow and obey you for the rest of our days. Thank you, Father, for your mercy.
Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. And Father, if we are just going through a season of drought, where this has just been a dry season in our spiritual life, and you have urged us in one way, and we, we've just said no. We have walked away from your wisdom, and we are hurting, and we are dry in this season. If that's where this season finds us, we ask for your grace, and we thank you for it right now. And we commit in our heart to pursue you and follow you. Would you restore the joy of our salvation today?